You're listening to a podcast presentation of Hillside Foursquare Church in Reno, Nevada. When I met Mike, I was introduced to him, and I can remember the first time we ever got to sit down and talk about what he was thinking with Compassion First. It was uh, sometime after that. I think it was at a, a cheesecake factory, and he said, I, I think what we want to do is we want to go into this place. We found that the kind of the, the last stop for Indonesian women who are involved in the sex industry is this cemetery where they go and at night sell themselves for about 75 cents. And we want to throw a Christmas party for these women. And I don't know what's going to come out of it, and I don't know what's going to happen, but I feel like one of the things that Jesus would do, what, would it, you know, what we should do, if we're doing whatever Jesus would be doing if he was walking in our shoes, is to throw a party for them and then to see what happens. And we stand here almost 14 years later seeing incredible things that are happening that were birthed out of that initial engagement. It wasn't just a Christmas party. It, was in a, it turned into an engagement within a community that turned into the beginnings of life transformation for so many uh, dozens and even beyond that of young women and the families that they touch. And so today we get to hear from our friend Mike, get to hear a little bit about what's happening with Compassion First as he shares the word with us. Tonight we're going to get even more about what, what's currently going on with Compassion First, how we can partner. But I want you to know that sometimes the things that God calls you to do are not going to seem great and they might even seem like, why would I do this? Throwing a Christmas party for prostitutes in a cemetery. It's like actually they were throwing a Christmas party for women in a cemetery who were caught in a web. And Jesus has done a miracle in rescuing their families and in bringing liberation to those that were bound, bringing sight to those that were blind, bringing light to those that were in darkness, bringing Jesus into the midst of that. And we get to be, have a part of that. One of the byproducts of getting to meet Mike is I didn't know this would happen. I'm very glad that it did because it really fits. It fits me. It fits us as a church. I got a friend. I have a friendship that developed from this. I don't know that we would, I would have thought that this was something that would develop from it. I appreciate Mike because of his faithfulness. I appreciate Mike because when he says something, he's going to follow through. I appreciate Mike because even though he finds himself in situations where he's at state dinners interacting in Washington, D.C., or interacting with the quote-unquote important people, he's the same person all the time. And that is such a rare thing and such a rare gift. We have the opportunity today to hear what God's doing, but also to celebrate with a friend as God continues to work in, through, and around his life and in the life of the incredible staff, some of whom you're going to meet today. Mike, will you speak to us today? Thanks, buddy. Oh, good morning to you. I got here by means of yak and canoe. Uh, I was supposed to get in last night, and um, Alaska Airlines had different plans, and so I started out in Seattle this morning and got here about an hour ago. If I slur my words, uh, you understand. Um, Louis is correct, uh, uh, especially about the friendship part. Um, this is such a value to me, this biorhythm of being here on my birthday week every year. I stand next to Joey on this stage every year and say hello. And we share uh, this time, this church, it's, it is important to compassion first. There's no question. It's a, it's a stakeholder church, but it's really important to me. I walk in here, I see familiar places, you treat me like family. 
This would be my church if I lived here because of you. This is the family of God. This is my Foursquare family. This is my church family. And I, I am so honored to be a part of the life of this church. Louis said something in introduction, and I, I do hope it's true. I do hope I'm the same in all contexts. And I'm only making mention of that because that is this week's part of the Advent. You can't have peace in your life if you are not integrously the same in all contexts. You, if you're not the same in all contexts, then you create internal conflict. And you're the only one that suffers it. You know, the peace of God is, is overwhelming. It's the most important thing to me. I, I say I want peace with my peace. And, um, and we live in a chaotic world. The theme of this year's, uh, we always kind of go with some line from Holy Night. Uh, and, and this year is a weary world, world rejoices. And, and the world is, is weary. I mean, we are weary. Uh, there's a pressurization to this year that I want to say prophetically, I believe is formational. Because I think that we can actually see the weariness, feel the weariness, identify what's causing the weariness, and, and then also say, but there's a lot of things good going on in here, going on with me, going on with us, uh, with our fellowship. Um, for some of us in our professional lives that we're growing and that's the character of Christ, that we would be growing, bearing fruit, even in seasons of, of drought, uh, a weary season for the world. And, and it's wearying. The, the externals for us are wearying right now. Uh, everything's really expensive. That's hard. Um, it's been a, a horrible year to be a nonprofit uh, because it's been a horrible year to run a household. I mean, that's just a, a reality, and, and yet we rejoice. That is the character of Christ. I'm going to do something that I haven't really done before, which is I'm going to uh, reprise what I spoke last year at Christmas. Usually the message that I write for this church for Christmas is my Christmas message for the next couple of years in churches, and I am so... Uh, I'm beholden to this message. And so it's not the same, but it's a lot alike. Um, and so I hope you weren't listening last year. Um, I'm starting with something with the scripture, but then something that one of our co-workers wrote about the cemeteries in Menar. The scripture, Matthew 2, 9 to 11, the wise men, or we understand them as the magi went their way. Once again, the star went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And they entered the house where the child fell down, uh, where the child and his mother Mary were, and they fell down before him and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It started with a Christmas party. In the Compassion First story, Christmas and cemeteries are intertwined. We huddle together around the light of the whole world, dressed in flesh and humility. God came to earth as a poor, naked baby. And of course, he lives in cemeteries. He comes to us disguised as one of us. And he came to us in our friend Menar. 
Do you realize we serve a king who during his time on earth never demanded a bended knee? Yet those who recognize him fall and worship at his feet. Menar did, and we followed her there. Through the graves and narrow alleyways to her tiny one-room house, Menar's house, where we left our flip-flops at the door, we sit cross-legged on sacred ground on a single mattress on the floor. The separation between heaven and earth seemed thinner there. Menar's house, the hiding place of God. Menar's house, humble, full of faith, laughter, prayers and tears, unfiltered conversations about life's hardships, God's love, and his salvation. When she died, we cried and cried. But not even death can extinguish light. Menar's legacy lives, extends far beyond her lifetime or her own family line. Her influence ripples throughout the Yellow Flower Cemetery community, the Rose Cemetery community, and through every other Compassion First interaction, current and future, with other communities throughout Indonesia, and it reaches across the globe to us this morning. When hope is born, it never dies. Come, let us adore him. Bow down before him. Jesus, the newborn and everlasting King. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. We dedicated locally, uh, with some guests online, Menar's house last week. And I want to tell you where, in this Rose Cemetery, where the smart kids classes and the parenting classes have been being held, they've been being held on a sort of a a scabbed together deck with an awning. It's scabbed onto an illegal building right up next to the Rose Cemetery, and the deck is built over graves. And it's tiny. And they've been doing everything in there. And we got a little bit of technology set up in there so that if our teachers aren't right there, they can be online. And it's just the coolest thing in the world, but it's not an adequate space. It's a precious and privileged space and the, the Muslim leadership of that cemetery community granted us that space. But to move into a much larger space that's going to also be an entrepreneurship center is significant. And, and between the Yellow Flower and the Rose, our cemetery outreaches, we've never had a building like this. And so at a later date, we will have a much more public ribbon cutting, if you will. I hope you'll all come uh, because you've been a part of the story. And so... Menar, I, honest, I had an honest conversation with God. I haven't had it too many times. And it's not unique to me. We've all had these conversations. What am I going to do now? And why this person? Right? How could you possibly take this person? 34 years old. And the, and the cemetery story is Menar. Her daughter, who was the first to get an education uh, sponsorship of her own impetus. She's the one that initiated the program. I know what my mom does. I know it's generational. I don't want to do it. I need to go to school. Will you help me? That's how our education sponsorship started. And it's developed into this high bar, um, best practices, case-managed partnership with the family interaction that is just too cool. It's not massive. It's not sprawling. We don't have a million kids. And it costs a lot more than 40 bucks a month. 
It costs a lot. That girl is going to be the second girl from the cemetery to actually graduate from college. We just had a college graduate from the cemetery this year. I'm saying the first kid ever from that whole neighborhood, that whole slum, to ever graduate from college. And she has an accounting degree now. That And it started with a conversation where we said, hey, could we, could we throw a Christmas party? We've taken Christmas offerings every year since. And me having a moment where the Holy Spirit just said, you know what, this is where I am and you can come if you want to. And so whatever excellence we have, and listen, every organization can tell you of their excellence. Anybody can do excellence. Not everybody does, but anybody can. It's an accessible thing. It is the metaphysical. It is the story of God. You have to walk with God to have access to that part. This is where I am. You can come if you want to. And so the fact that you guys have all joined us, and as Louis said, it's probably the most humbling part. I'm trying to get Louis and Joni to Indonesia someday, and you are too. That might be it for this church. I don't know. I mean, y'all may come someday. You're welcome. We'll figure it out, but it's not super feasible, right? And yet, we're on this journey together. That's the humbling thing. That's the global ethos of the church, and something I want to talk a little bit about this morning. The Christmas story is, there's so much to it, the, the history of it. You can just have a whole history lesson on the Christmas story. You can just, you, we can do a whole message on cultural disruption, Right? We can, we can talk about the saturation of theology, the Christology of the birth, and, and, and the, the theology of God, theology proper. We can talk about the prophetic fulfillment. In fact, for the believer who's a little bit nerdy, they can go through and find all of the prophetic texts that are fulfilled by this specific birth and the when and the where, and it's, it's like a proof-texting situation where you think, you see it's real, and the non-believer still doesn't care, Right? Because we all needed Jesus to come to us the way he came, which is an incarnation that the proof texts mean nothing unless he comes in, right? The proof text means nothing until we, we see it with our eyes, until we have the encounter with Jesus. And it's why Christmas is so special, because Jesus comes to each of us, every one of us. And if you have not committed yourself to Christ I would argue that the, the fact that you're here means you're, you're kicking the tires and, and that he's been talking to you and that he's drawn you to this place of worship to know him more. We all know him because of the way he came. Each of us individually know him because he came to us. He arrived in the way that he did to all of the people in the audience of the nativity and we are represented there. And we cannot get past the fact that he must enter into our hearts the way he entered the world. That's not a place of logic. The Magi, who we're going to talk about a little bit today, they were not working from logic. What they were doing made no sense. Neither for all of the others who were in audience of the baby at some point. But somehow this all made sense to them. There's a theme to the theology of the person of God. 
he is really, really big. He is huge, but he makes himself small. He makes himself small, small to be with us. We have a phrase as evangelicals that he comes into our hearts. That's a big God going into a small place. You can't wrap your head around the idea that he would make himself small for us, that he would allow himself to be humiliated on a cross for us. Consider that he came as a baby in the most vulnerable way and that he left on a cross in the most vulnerable way. He made himself small, subjecting himself to normal birth, to cold poverty, to a pregnancy that for most was unwanted, definitely unplanned. To gather an audience of the significant and the forgotten at the same time. And he comes and he identifies with each of us this way. And at the same time, he is holy. He walks into our world, this unholy place, as holy. That means other than. It means he's different than everything and different than all of us. Set apart. And he walks into the middle, incarnationally into the middle of us, into the middle of our human experience that's riddled with disappointments. And here's, I mean, I think there's like two categories of disappointments. Other humans letting us down and us letting ourselves down. Those are the two categories. And I think the latter's the harder, by the way. Like, I think we forgive other people more easily than we forgive ourselves. And if you've got that turned around the other way, good on you, because if you know how to forgive yourself, you're a lot easier on other people. It's a, there's a high level of grace required for any of us just to keep our most important relationships going and healthy, right? And that's the tread on the tire of, of God's holiness. He is other than. He keeps all of his promises. He comes through on everything that he says. He identifies with us in an experiential and a personal way. And for me, the, the highest and the most profound things of God, as I get a little bit older, prayerfully a little bit wiser, they just get simpler and simpler. That as Pastor Louie and Joni talk about the peace of God this morning, I'm like, I don't need to preach. You just keep talking about the peace of God and I will listen to anything you have to say because the peace of God, it's good. We want the peace of God. We want every part of the advent, the hope, the joy, the love, and the peace, intangible things, things against such things there is no law. You're never going to get in trouble for the peace you offer others. You're never going to get in trouble for the love you offer others. Your joy can get you in trouble if you behave badly with it, but appropriate joy, I mean, how's it going to harm anybody? These themes that we celebrate at the Advent, they get simpler and simpler for me, and I know exactly what I want from this life. Hope, joy, love, peace. Peace with my peace. And while these prevailing statements of faith may be simple, they flow from an extremely high view of God, that he is big, he is not small. And the Advent means that he walks right into the, to the middle of us. It is a street-level definition of the incarnation. It is for these reasons and a lot of reasons that I do not, I am not one who laments what the world has done to Christmas. I do not care. 
In fact, I celebrate it. And somebody say, oh, the commercialization and the profiting and all of that. That's just, that's just this world. That's just life. The fact is, is that the whole world is celebrating Christmas right now. And there is nothing wrong with that. Listen, we work in Indonesia. It's 86% Muslim, at least officially. The whole nation's decorated for Christmas right now. There's an honoring of the Christians that takes place. This is your holiday. Let's celebrate it with you. They do the same. The Christians do the same thing for the Muslims at Ramadan. It's actually beautiful. God is big and Christmas is for everybody, which means that it's still for you and me. It's sort of an eternal uh, access to that statement that, you know, we loved Christmas when we were kids, at least I hope so. And maybe we dreamed about what it was going to be like when we grew up so that we could provide good Christmases for our kids. Christmas is not just for our kids, it's still for us, right? And then laterally, that it's for everybody. It's for believers and non-believers alike. The verses that lead up to the ones that I read at the beginning, Matthew 2 verses 1 to about 8, says Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was so deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. And he called a meeting of the leaders, leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. And then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. And he learned from them uh, the time when the star first appeared. And they told him, go to Bethlehem. Then he told him, go to Bethlehem, search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so I can go and worship him too. And after this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over to the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And they entered the house, and they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Let's, say, let's note that, that these men worshipped him. And then they opened their treasure chests, and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The birth of Jesus and his earliest days is such an enfranchising part of Scripture. And as believers, we should be sincerely challenged by it. It should be forefront in our mindset about God and his outreach, who he is trying to reach, even in this story of his birth. Who he's trying to reach and how he's trying to reach them, the lengths that he will go to do so. And it, have, it should have us as a result being dismissive of no human beings. Very early in our work, I was, um, I'm fairly certain I told this story last year. I'm going to amend it. I was preaching in a church, and I got two hits right after the service. And, and I've learned as I've grown up how to sort of absorb these things, you know. Um, first, I was telling a, a story about this beautiful interaction with Muslim imams and a reconciliation that was taking place. And... And the fact that these imams were showing up at the dedication of Christian schools that were run by people they trusted and 
and the interactions that were just so beautiful. The first guy that comes up and says to me, he says, you know, it's really remarkable that you have these interactions with Muslims because they're worshiping Satan. And I said to him, I said, I'm not going there with you. I'm not going to talk about my friends that way. I think they're looking for God. And I certainly believe what I believe. But I'm not going to let you say that about them. Second person came up, same church, and said, well, you know, uh, Rick Warren is promoting, you know, this hybrid religion called Chrislam. And, and I said, I don't think that's true. Now, the reason why people were saying that about Rick is he'd made friends with Cat Stevens. You know, they're kind of neighbors, and they stop by each other's houses and have coffee. And so, of course, that's bad, you know. <laughs> an audience for this birth moment or we kind of cram it all into the manger scene there's probably a stretch of time here it didn't all happen at the right at the same time we we do that because of the the reference to the star in the sky and the guidepost by the time the magi arrived they maybe were visiting a family in a home but if we cram it all into the same birth scene for the sake of efficiency here's who you potentially have an audience you have Angels, the whole host of heaven, in fact. You have some animals. You have Joseph and Mary. You probably have a, a small business owner, an innkeeper maybe, uh, somebody who at least owned this property, trying to help out how they can. And you have shepherds, this overlooked sort. Very important people. They were important to the food supply and the clothing supply but largely forgotten, had to live away from their families most of the time, kind of showered at the truck stop once a quarter, you know? These were not socialites, otherwise forgettable. And magi, just a quick look into who these people were, these magi, because it's important to know who they weren't. They were not Jewish, they were not Israelites, they were not Hebrew, they were foreigners. The prophecies of old meant nothing to them. There was no promise that was historical, cultural to them that they were chasing down. They had no Jewish or Hebrew tradition or education. They did not worship Yahweh. Some scholars believe that they were Zoroastrians, ever looking to the changing sky for direction. They were something between wealthy dignitaries and kings. We don't really know, but we know that they had resources because they were carrying resources. They weren't like the shepherds. This contrast of who was in audience, we know they were important. The reason why we know they were important is because Herod called them. They had some dignitary value. And they brought gifts that likely funded the Holy Family for most of its early years. And these guys got, a, got an early audience with Jesus, along with God's chosen, along with the disenfranchised who God never forgets about, along with the poor. There are a handful of things that we can know just from acknowledging this important part of the Christmas story. And we can know it's important because it made the text. And the first is this, and here's... My notes with some addendums, with some additional notes. Christmas is for everybody, meaning that it is still for you and me. You notice that the, 
magi are only in Matthew's gospel. That is seriously important because Matthew's gospel was a message, his audience were the Jews. His audience were the Hebrew people. The heritage that they carried was important to him. That was his audience. And he's the one that's pointing out that these outsiders were at the birth. He's the one that wrote the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, where, where Jesus enfranchised a bunch of non-religious people and said, you all count too. Matthew's making a point. He highlights these men, and the highlight of these men has to be significant to us as we navigate this world. Because there's a lot of people who aren't like us. And, and Jesus loves all of them. And listen, we are living in a day and age, especially with, with, uh, with the, the torrent of social media that is informing us that we are to hate people. It is informing us that we need to be against things. And listen, being moral and having, having a biblical standard doesn't mean being against stuff because we only manage ourselves, Right? We're only responsible for ourselves. And, and our conflict with others is not going to lead them to Jesus. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And there is nobody beyond the reach of the Holy Spirit. You know, this confidence that we have, that we know the truth, that we know the, the gospel truth, and the right and the wrong that comes from it, there should be no arrogance that comes from that. It should only be humbling that we could know the truth rather than this idea that we would look at the world and say, you should know better because God said this when, when a person maybe has not had uh, a, a Pauline experience on the road to Damascus yet. Even those that are torrentially against the cross, that their moment is coming where Jesus may very well intervene in their lives. There's some really wonderful current stories in pop culture right now about this. People who have been opposed to the cross, worshipers of Satan, literally that's their MO, getting saved and, and, and attending Orthodox churches and worshiping Jesus now with integrity. I, I am weary, this is where I'm weary. I'm weary of friends saying, ah, we're just getting so far gone, I just want Jesus to come back. I reject that. Because that means, I think, what they're saying, I think, is when he comes back, he's also going to destroy all the people we don't like. On the one hand, that's what they're saying. And on the other hand, it's a concession. Ah, Jesus, probably time to come back. Uh, nice try. Better luck next time, but it didn't work. Oh my goodness, there are still revivals in this story. There are still promises to Abraham not yet fulfilled. Read Psalm 105. Read, read Psalm 100 to 105 and, and just listen to those promises. Read Isaiah. Christmas is so beautiful, you know, and, and it's chaotic too. 
my wife was telling me that she loves going to the stores at Christmas and she just doesn't like getting into the stores at Christmas. It, it's hard and that people are getting more aggressive and a little more violent and um, you say, you know, the goodness that we know in our homes, though, these peaceful places, why can't we, why can't we have that year round? And I think that that's actually our calling. I think that Christmas year round is our calling. Believers full of the Holy Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, not some performance driven spectacle, right? I remember joining up with them, say something very critical and kind of mean, uh, with a when I was a youth pastor and kind of gathering youth groups together and this crosstown youth pastor leading a worship song and then his mantra, every time I ever heard him speak was, can Christians have fun too? Can Christians just like sit down, buddy? That's not, that's not a great message. Hope and joy and peace and love, that's a good message. But the fact that we can be at the cool kids table too and still be holy, that's, that's holiness is it's a matter of us bearing fruit and being set apart in strength and in, in an identity with Christ and a humility, genuine peace, hope, joy, and love manifest in our lives in a growing way in, on a year-round basis. You know, Luke 2.14 2, has angels exclaiming this praise, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. King James Version says men. Some translations says all men. Some translations say with whom God is pleased. It's confused. And it kind of, you kind of get the idea that he might be seeking everybody. That he came for everybody. That there's something that he's finding in everybody and trying to draw himself to. Christmas is for everybody and our culture celebrates that. And Jesus came for everybody and our lives get to celebrate that. Now the addendum, that it is still for you and me. You know where you can lose that sense? Dealing with entitled children. They're expecting stuff and it causes you pain because you have to buy the stuff. And depending on the ages of the children, there's sure to be some meltdowns. And depending on the ages of adults, there's also sure to be meltdowns. My parents missed an opportunity when I was a kid, about 10 years old. And I was trying to, you know, 10-year-olds just trying to figure out how to exist. Ten-year-old boys, by the way, are trying to figure out how to exist without internally apologizing for existing. I'm telling you that is the truth. That boys in particular gain a feeling very young that it's not okay to be themselves. The world tells them this and the church tells them this. So I'm bumping around at Thanksgiving. We've got a ton of people over at our house, a lot of family. And I probably wasn't on my best. And, uh, and whatever I was doing was causing my parents stress. And it was probably bumping up against their pride. And I was responded to harshly by my dad. And here's the thing. He missed the teachable moment. So his pride was hurt. My parents' pride was hurt. He responded harshly to me, which probably probably became a seedbed for my own future pride because I would become protective of myself and we all miss that moment. It could have been accomplished with love and gentle instruction. Let me just apply it this way. When we lose our joy, our kids lose the meaning. More crassly, uh, when we lose our fill-in-the-blank, our kids lose the gift. 
Second, and I'll go a little faster here. Christmas reveals the generosity of God and causes us to become more like him. Listen, the way God provides is profound. If you have walked with God, every one of us who has walked with God has a story. Has a story of either God telling us to provide in generosity to somebody who wasn't going to make it if we didn't provide, do what the Lord told us to do, or us, and, and most likely the case for all of us, having a moment where if God didn't come through, we don't know what would have happened. Every one of us has that story. We should just sit down and compare notes on a Sunday morning. Everybody has that story. Last week, the men's group at my home church, they stated a need, family in need, you know, lost a job, right? Church is going to match what the men's group can come up with. Before I could even get my phone out to give some money, it was met. Joseph had a good trade, probably made good money as a young man, but he had an illegitimate child in a religious community. I'm guessing all of his work dried up. It's a shame. It's a shame. And then these three strangers show up with cases of gold and tradable spices. This got them down the road probably for the child's entire childhood. That's the generosity of God. Extravagant generosity. Riches. It's not a... a, name it and claim it message, by the way. It's, we don't get to predicate or say how this happens. Usually it's just enough when God provides. But the generosity of God is perf- profound, and we should be sobered because God doesn't see people the way we do, and God doesn't do people the way we do. He brings a bunch of non-Jewish foreigners and provides The generosity of God is profound, and it shouldn't be a surprise that the generosity of Christians is profound because it's a matter of heart and life and joy and living out life with God. It shouldn't surprise us as an organization that this church has been so generous to us. We're friends. We're part of the kingdom. We're family. And it's how we're becoming like God, generosity of resources and generosity of grace and forgiveness towards other people. Let me tell you something. I, I think there's a math to this. If you grow in grace, you grow in generosity. If you're forgiving, I think you give away more money, more of your resources, more of your time, more, more goodness from your heart. A couple of things with this. First is this. This is how significant I think it is. I think that almsgiving is an actual sacrament. In fact, Louis, can we just replace penance Uh, You mentioned penance this morning. Let's kick that one out, move almsgiving in. Right next to their communion and marriage, almsgiving. Because here's the thing with the sacraments. They are intended, they're institutionalized to God's closeness. Marriage, if you want to use the word institution, it's designed that we would be united with God permanently along with another human being. Baptism, completely submerged and identifying with Christ in his death and resurrection, enveloped in God. So much so that it's publicly obvious. Communion, identifying and consuming internally the death and resurrection of Jesus, the, the, the brokenness of his body and the, and the cleansing of his blood. 
confession, the idea that you can tell him anything. It's all meant to get us close to God. It's like the feasts of the Old Testament, celebrating something God did. Almsgiving. God is with the poor. And he wants us to be close to him. And we got to get close to the poor. When we get close to the poor, we're closer to him. Almsgiving. An institution that makes sure that we're getting there close in, in rhythmic season, like a feast. I think it's a sacrament. Second, look where, look where this whole concept of tithe started. It, was, it wasn't demanded by God. It was Abraham responding to the presence of Melchizedek and saying, not only am I giving you 10% of what I got, this is going to happen for the rest of my life. And it was just oh, exploding from him. Nobody was requiring a thing from him. He was growing up before the eyes of God right there. The last is this, that Christmas changes the course of our lives. And for us, it continues to set the course of history because we are setting the course of history. We are a part of this story. Herod asked these men to return once they saw the child. They didn't return. They changed course. This is significant because can you imagine what it meant to them to be invited back to the palace and what that would have meant to them back in their home state? Like the cachet and... The, the future power uh, that, that they would have gained because they were now officially diplomatic in their, you know, in their journey. And they went another way. They went another way. They gave up all of that. They passed on a lot. If they were kings, they passed on what it would do for their foreign relations. If they weren't kings... They passed on what it would have done for their status. You see, their lives were now guided by a different hope. Their pathway and their decisions, they were now informed by different priorities because they knew Jesus. They had seen Jesus. In the case for us, knowing Jesus changes everything. Your knowledge of Jesus lived out is meaningful to the people around you, whether they know you're a Christian or not. I can tell you, right now we are having an amazing time in Bakasi, Indonesia. It's a green zone. It's a, it's a majority Muslim, conservative Muslim. We work there under the favor of a pastor who broke up the hard ground and he's the most favored man in the city. And we have peace with the Muslim community around us. And the government doesn't quite know what to do with us. They don't distrust us. They just don't think it's going to work. They like us. But they're like, how can we how can we refer Muslim girls to you when you're Christians? And our answer to that is, hey, we are who we are. I guess you've got to give it a try. You know? And we honor their religion, and, and we have had Muslims come to know Christ, and it's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, right? And we offer you know, Christian discipleships available, but you, you can't require that. And you know what? It's working. And the Muslim girls, they want to stay. And that's just the favor of God. That's just being a Christian in this world. Love demands nothing except that it would live in the potential of the opportunity to love and love more. Let me just say that again. Love demands nothing except that it would live in the potential opportunity to love and to love more. 
as we finish up here, you can set your Bibles aside there. My life was changed at Christmas. I think I came to know Christ years before my parents did. Uh, I'm going to argue that, I mean, I'm really glad my parents came to know Jesus, but I was, you know, 12 years old, prepubescent. Uh, it's not a good time for a lot of change in the household, if you know what I mean. And so suddenly I got holy rollers for parents, and I'm not comfortable with that. I got saved when I was seven years old. My parents would take us to this ecumenical church for Christmas and Easter. Uh, it was the church that my dad went to AA meetings at, so that's how we found that church. Now, that church invited Jesus to leave a long time ago. All right, I think it invited Jesus to leave before we were even there. But I sat in their Christmas Eve service, and I knew I wanted to know God. It's when he started talking to me. I'm six years old, right? It's just, I, I drive by that church all the time. I'm going to go to a Christmas Eve service there this year, I think, because I just it's important to me, you know? I don't agree a thing about their theology, and I just don't care. That's where I met God for the first time. It's when I started talking to him. I believed this thing about Jesus coming. It wouldn't be my place of fellowship, but I revere that little place. Our cemetery outreach started with Christmas. My earliest encounter was just asking if we could throw a Christmas party. You know what? It all started with Christmas. I think if we examine it ourselves, it's pretty important to our own spiritual development. When we look at this, we, we know the importance of the incarnation because being in that cemetery, we know that charity won't solve anything. Transformation and the healing of our relationships with God, with each other, with ourself, and with the earth. Those things, those relationships have to be healed for transformation to take place, not the giving away of free food. And that dignity is part of the Imago Dei. And dignity is robbed when you just give things away. But dignity is secured when you walk alongside somebody. And I got to tell you something. It's the way you've walked alongside us. You have contributed to the dignity of Compassion First. This isn't free money you give us. This is life on life. It's discipleship. And thank you for discipling us the way that you do. God bless you. Can we stand and pray? I apologize for taking so long. I lose judgment when I've lost sleep. So, <laughs> God in heaven, Yahweh, the I am, all that I am, I will be for you. That's the meaning of your name. Lord, we come in the name of Jesus. We come for the sake of everybody in the room and we come for the sake of our friends afar, Christians and Muslims and Hindus. Oh Lord, we pray for a birthplace experience for all of them, that you would call them to the place of your birth like you did the Magi and if you have to use a star to get them there or any other means necessary that you would do it. We pray for the revivals that are yet to happen on this earth. I believe with all of my heart that the last great ones coming out of Indonesia and coming out of Islam. And Lord, if I'm wrong, oh gosh, such a thing to be wrong about. I pray for this church. 
I pray that you bless it. Bless it with more babies because, God, when you bless a church with babies, you're blessing a church. You're trusting a church. Lord, bless Louie and Joni and their family and bless the families that make up the corpus of this place and the people who haven't walked into the doors yet, but they're coming because this is a place that they will be welcome and they will want to worship God here. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and may the fruit of this season be the fruit that we have all year round, the love and the joy and the peace and the hope of Jesus himself. And in the humility of Jesus, that this world would know this is a city on a hill, that they are loved because they are loved. And it's beyond explanation. And so we pray into a metaphysical reality that we can't even explain. And God, where we're short of faith, will you give us faith? And we pray for every blessing available that we could know you more. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. As we prepare to go, I want you to take a couple things with you. Don't forget when he said Christmas is for you and me. It's for us. It's for us. I believe God's doing something and wants to do something inside of you to restore hope, to restore peace, to lift the weariness. Jesus is the one. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your soul. He's here to do that. God bless you. Have a great rest of your son. This has been a podcast presentation of Hillside Foursquare Church in Reno, Nevada. You can reach us via email at web at hillside4.org. That's W-E-B at hillside, the number 4, dot org.